0: our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the Weststar Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of Western scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today.
1: Hello, I'm Jordan Miller, and I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. The title of this episode of Interrupted is Capitalism Interrupted. What you'll hear is a roundtable conversation among eight different Westar scholars and practitioners on some of the ways they think religious scholarship and practices can intervene in capitalism. The folks on this roundtable represent a wide cross-section of Westar's activities, including Westar's History of Christianity seminar, the seminar on God and the Human Future, the Christ seminar, and the Praxis Forum. Each of the panelists will introduce themselves when they start to speak, but you'll be hearing from Hollis Phelps, Julia Kahn, Colin Glavick, Nina Livesey, Wilson Dickinson, Claudio Carvalhies, Jeff Robbins, and Ellie Elliott. Each of them will deliver an opening statement, making some kind of key point about capitalism. After they've each gone, they'll get into a roundtable discussion toward the end. The conversation was organized by the Westar Think Tank. Have a look at the show notes, where we'll index where the different talks appear in this episode if you'd like to jump around some. Also, we'll include some more information about each of the speakers there. All right, here it is Capitalism Interrupted.
2: I'm Hollis Phelps. I'm an associate professor of interdisciplinary studies at Mercer University in Georgia. And um, I've been involved in the God and the Human Future Seminar. And um, the title of my very brief intervention today is God Without Compromise Against Mammon. So you cannot serve God and mammon. The disjunction between these two figures of mastery runs through much of what Jesus said and did. You can follow God, as Jesus recommends, or you can follow mammon, which is money or wealth. Mammon is, simply put, the way of the world, the status quo, in Jesus' time and in ours. It's God or mammon, full stop. There's no in-between point, no prioritizing of one over the other. The disjunction between God and mammon is material, meaning that it is lived out concretely in our lives in allegiance to one or the other. It's a matter of time, attention, and devotion, as Philip Goodchild would say. One can't, Jesus stresses, serve two masters, so the relationship between the two is an either-or, not a both-and. So how is it that we've completely watered down this distinction, ranking the two in terms of priority? One can serve God and mammon so long as one puts God first, so the thinking goes. How is it that we came to this point on top of an otherwise quite clear opposition between the two? Now it's a long convoluted story involving concessions, pragmatic considerations, and ultimately the parasitic relationship between capitalism and Christianity. I can't trace that genealogy here, but the problem goes back even further to early theological reflections on wealth. Early on, an interpretive decision was made that we should read Jesus's statements about wealth immaterially or spiritually. And if you want a preeminent example of this, check out Clement of Alexandria's, who is the rich man who can be saved. That is wealth as such is not the problem, but how we comport ourselves to it. Otherwise put wealth is a matter of properly oriented desire, a matter of the heart, so to speak. If one's desire, one's heart is in the right place, then wealth isn't a problem. It can even be a benefit to those in need in the form of charity. This is exactly what Jesus rejects, however. There is no properly oriented desire when it comes to money, because money just is the type of thing that disorients desire. It's not the love of money that is the root of all evil, but money itself. Hence the disjunction between God and mammon. It forces a choice, one that, if we're honest, we take for mammon through no fault of our own, since that's the way the world works. But to pit God against mammon forces us also to imagine a different world, one where loaves and fishes multiply, where we become like the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, where we become like children. Mammon is always about scarcity, about not having enough. God is about abundance, about excess, Those are two very different masters to serve. Thank you.
3: Good evening. So I'm Julia Kahn and I am a member of the Think Tank. I am the co-chair of the Praxis Forum as well as a pastor of Charlemont Federated Church in Charlemont, Massachusetts. And it's wonderful to be with you this evening. If I were to sum everything up, I would say that in short, Trickle-down economics is incongruent with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus' sharing of food and resources was an integral part of the early Christ communities. After Christ, we first hear this from Paul. In 2 Corinthians, he writes about a collection for the Jerusalem church. There he says, it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. Paul is asking the Christ followers to bear one another's burdens, a theme we also hear in Galatians where bearing one another's burdens is seen as fulfilling the laws of Christ. Seen in this way, the body of Christ becomes incarnate when it seeks to help other members in sustaining one another. They become one body, a new creation, something that scholar Aliu Nian describes as a believer being led by the Holy Spirit into a new and upright relationship with the world centered on ethics. Communal sharing is still in effect some years later when the Lucan author pens Acts. The theme runs through chapters two, four, five, and six, and I'm sure plenty of scholars can tell you all about it more in depth. And it can be seen in descriptions of the earliest worship, concentering on the sharing of a communal meal, and it can be seen in the rise of aesthetic communities in the early church. So how did we get from its common practice in the early Christ communities, to the notion of trickle-down economics. I believe it begins with Constantine and the union of church and state. It is perfected in Europe, where it becomes so enmeshed with keeping socio-political norms that the reality of Jesus and his early followers' existence all but vanishes. Gone are notions of the cross as an act of commitment to one's community. Gone are notions of Jesus so loved the world that he gave himself up. As Christianity made its way to the modern Western world, the spreading of Christianity was seen as one in the same as the spreading of Western thought, commerce and landholdings. From a history of confronting Roman imperialism, Christianity weds itself to Western imperialism. Rather than critiquing socio-political and socio-economic realities, the church upholds them. Reformation thinkers such as Martin Luther and John Calvin struggle with this idiosyncrasy. Luther describes early Christianity, however, uh, the communal sharing of it as only possible with the Holy Spirit. Since communal sharing only works when it's freely given and since human beings are incapable of freely sharing, it would require nothing short of divine intervention. And Calvin goes even further. He says something to the effect that common sharing is an act which should be held in check. He asserts a common pot. Well, that could have never have existed. During the colonial period, the American colonies were seen as the church doing God's work of spreading the gospel in a new land. So that by the time of the Gilded Age, we could ask, where's the church of the early Christ followers? Massive industrialization creates a whole new class of wealth and robber barons become America's aristocracy and they justify their new position in society with a belief in social Darwinism. They got where they were because they're stronger, smarter, and more deserving turning a biological understanding of evolution into social thought, they cling to the idea that God created this world this way. They are simply living into the way that things were meant to be. I'm not sure if they're aware of Luther and Calvin's positions on communal sharing, but they sure live into it. The new rich of the Gilded Age do not believe in communal sharing. They believe in sharing what feels comfortable. We get the rise of philanthropy. Of course, not too long after this Philanthropy morphs, morphs into giving what one truly has, give, from giving what one truly has to a tax write off, which further assists in the acquisition of wealth and prestige. The deal is done. Capitalism is seen as the only healthy and natural way to live. It is ordained by God, the maker of all that is, and, well, the maker of the fittest. So to question capitalism is to question God's order. I contend capitalism needs to be questioned. To question capitalism is to question God, is not to question God's order. It needs to be held to account for where it fails as well as where it gets it right. We can't ignore that at its healthiest and best, capitalism promotes innovation and creates advances in production goods and services. Capitalism unchecked, however, or only checked on a limited segment of our population leads to outrageous inequality and human degradation So let's not be afraid to question capitalism because like faith, it can grow healthier, more robust and less dogmatic by facing the gauntlet of doubt. If a a faith questioned is a faith truly lived, then wouldn't the same be true for America's national religion of capitalism? Thank you.
4: Hi everyone, I'm Colin Glavack. I'm one of the founding members of Praxis currently work as the Praxis coordinator. I put together events for Praxis, and when I'm not doing that stuff, I'm a real live writer. I have two spy thrillers published, and I should be publishing my third book soon. I just need to do some formatting, so I'm sort of a weird one on this panel, right? Like, what's this writer dude have to say about capitalism or theology or whatever? Well, I'm a millennial, so the culture of concern around capitalism is in me, and I've been a part of Western Praxis for a while, but I, I want to say something slightly different. Uh, I wanna bring something different to the table with my background as a writer that I think is relevant. So when I completed my master's degree at Brock University in 2017, my final paper was on theology in comic books. And there are a ton of comics with angels and demons and God figures doing battle, but maybe not so surprisingly, also a number that link a political, theological, economic tripod of criticism. In Vertigo's Punk Rock Jesus by Sean Murphy, DNA from the Shroud of Turin is extracted and used to impregnate a virgin teenager on a reality TV show, and as she gives birth to the second coming, ratings soar as Christians around the world love or hate what their media religion has created. In Vertigo's Hellblazer, issue number three, written by the, in the 80s by Jamie Delano, investment associates are actually demons in disguise and capturing yuppie souls because the soul market is booming thanks to Thatcher's conservative government and likelihood to continue her term. So I try and continue this tradition in my new series for young adults, a young kid gets thrust into the world of magic by linked with contemporary economics and finance. Our protagonist has to go through customer service to get through to a Lord of hell. And when there, the Lord tries to sell a limited time bundle of desires in return for his soul, which can be paid by While traveling through hell, our main character rides in a boat driven by a retired Grim Reaper through the harrowing river of retail where lost souls who have worked retail try desperately and violently to sell things with famous sales lines like buy one, get one free, and a demonic manager the size of an apartment building demands to see a rewards card. So lots of fun stuff. But this is all to say that with stories, we can link theological conversation around capitalism in ways that can present themselves more powerfully and to different audiences through stories we are very good at identifying capitalism's problems and we're even pretty okay at coming up with some solutions. But what I think is we really struggle to implement them. And I think that has a lot to do with the story of capitalism, how people perceive it and them as characters in that world. In many cases, what has been and what will always be. It is a very similar problem we face with Christianity. So just as theologian Don Cupid calls for in his book, A New Great Story, we need, we too, need to envision a new story as we move forward while interrupting capitalism. Thank you.
5: I'm Nina Livesey. I'm a professor of religious studies at the University of Oklahoma. I also co-chair West Star's Christianity Seminar, Phase 2, and I'm a member of its board of directors. My topic this evening is the environmental crisis framed as the Earth's inability to adequately accommodate market-based capitalism. In environmentalist terms, this bears on the issue of unsustainability, which is something you've probably heard. My topic emerges as well from a course that I developed and teach at the University of Oklahoma called World Religions and Ecology. At the start of that course, I have students read the late 20th century landmark essay, The Religion of the Market, by the Buddhist scholar, David Loy. That article actually founds the entire course in which I go through various world religions. Loy makes the audacious, yet then and now, correct observation that the market is the world's true religion. His argument is that people in developed and developing nations live largely by and under market forces that have become naturalized. The market operates most efficiently with high levels of consumption. Thus market capitalism is based on the understanding that more is better a philosophy that Loy points out valorizes greed. Market faith, my term, uh, plays out in ways that are harmful to society and the environment. In real terms, overconsumption robs the earth of its vital resources. We're seeing that play play out all the time now. While the world's religions reject greed, and provide alternative teachings, as we've heard some of those already this evening, on social justice, sharing, and care of the earth, Uh, they have been unable to fully divorce themselves from market forces, and thus unable to adequately fulfill or comply with their own teachings. As the practicing Buddhist Loy comments, Uh, Consumption does not lead to happiness or fulfillment. The market promises are indeed empty. Thank you.
6: Thanks Jordan and thanks for the invitation to be here. Thanks everybody on the think tank for uh, putting this together. Um, so I'm Wilson Dickinson. I teach theology and the director of uh, the Doctor of Ministry program at Lexington Theological Seminary, um, and I also direct the Green Good News, which is an organization that educates, cultivates, and organizes around issues of sustainability, of environmental justice, and Christian discipleship. And I'm also uh, part of the steering committee for the new Christ Seminar. What I really want to say, though, I should probably actually introduce myself as Teddy's dad, Carly's husband settler colonialist son of the bluegrass, Um, because my thesis is is that our inability inability to see the overlapping spheres of the commons, social reproduction, and creation make it difficult for us to see the alternative forms of power pulsating through the margins and recessive layers of Christian traditions, like Acts 2, and avenues of action for us today. Um, So I want to spend my time simply trying to kind of point to and name these spheres. Um, and so I, I, I was gonna give you a little diagram. It was actually, it's just, I think you all can picture this. It's a circle with a line through it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very simplified version of something that's taken out of um, Herbert Reed and Betsy Taylor's book called Recovering the Commons. And so all I wanna do is designate this. So, so you know at, in the top of that sphere, um, it's I, I labeled it the domain of production and the bottom of it is the the domain of reproduction, right? So the dominant systems and even cultural forms in our context tend to see everything as a big market, right? So the dominant imaginary sees everything's in terms of the domain of production. So natural systems are said to be governed by competition and the laws of the market are themselves allowed to be natural, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it makes more sense to see the domain of production as one part and a largely parasitic part of the entirety of creation. So this is the world of factories, the world of production of factories and offices and work, everything that is counted in budgets and economic indexes. So the, ma- the material reality is though that everything that happens in the demand of production is completely reliant on domains of reproduction. Right, so for the factory to run, there have to be natural resources to be extracted. There have to be workers who are cared for, in terms of community that give their lives shape and meaning um, and houses where housework is done. Right? Yet under the accounting schemes of neoliberal capitalism, these domains of reproduction are considered to be externalities, right? this is their technical term for them. The damage done to lands is not included in the cost benefit analysis. There are typically no wages paid for housework and no provisions given for community. But viewed otherwise, uh, these domains could be more than a hazy, abused, and exploited background. Bringing these spheres of creation, social reproduction, and the commons into focus allows us to see added dimensions of our lives and even alternative avenues of power. So, for example, insofar as we come to see the sphere of social reproduction, which are those relationships, spaces, and institutions that care for us as biological beings and shape us as social beings. So these are places like home, neighborhoods, uh, schools and churches. So when we begin to see this sphere of social reproduction, we can be- begin to see the practices of everyday life and the social imaginaries that shape so much of our lives. So bringing these everyday practices into focus allows us to see the ways that neoliberal capitalism directs our labor and our desire. And it's also at this level that we can begin to intervene and create alternative forms that could in turn create sustaining and transforming collective power for structural change. And we can see these emergent forms of power come already at work and kind of always at work in areas like the local food movement and the Christian food movement, um, in women-led land reclamation and community k- kitchen movements in Africa and Latin America, or in the emerging voice in the United States of nurses and teachers unions, right, those spheres of care. So by attending to these spheres, we can get a glimpse at logics and poetics that are not centered on property, productivity, efficiency, and dominating relationships of power, but instead can begin to live into ways of life and thinking that are centered on the commons, care, love, and relationships of collective and egalitarian power. And if we can begin to see these terms or in terms of this alternative theopoetics, then I think we can perceive entirely different dimensions of so many Christian traditions. Right, we can begin to see that the visions of sharing that happens in breaking bread from house to house and pooling resources are grounded in a political and theological vision of the commons and a vision of social change that builds power through social reproduction. And I think we can begin to see the very alternative forms of power that we need to cultivate, nurture, and harness in the face of the systems of global capitalism that are desecrating and destroying our communities and creation itself.
7: My name is Legion, and I own you. I am many, so there you can be one. I took Claudio, professor of Union Theological Seminary, as hostage to speak to you in 358 words. I'll let him
4: speak now.
7: Friends, we are all possessed. We are possessed by the demons of capitalism. The spirits of legion has taken us all, our bodies, our scholarship, our institutions, our churches, our ways of living. We are all possessed by the spirits of capitalism. And when we think about capitalism, we tend to think that books and ideas alone do. Our religious thinking has lots of head,
0: some heart,
7: very little spirit, and nothing of land. We have lost the pragmatics aspect of our world, and religion has become an object, discrete, theoretical thinking project, where practices are secondary. Coloniality, my friends! has won the battle uprooting us all from every possible way from the land the spirit of colonialism is a twin brother of capitalism who married patriarchy whose ancestors were hierarchies of power they all gave birth to modernity who brought us racism, who took over our desires, who shaped the nomos of our world, who created the American exceptionalism and liberalism, whose lack of consciousness around land, earth, and other species composes the spirits of Legion who now possesses us all. We are so colonized by all the spirits so uprooted from the land that we can't think with the land. We cannot think about the stealing of the land that we are using stolen land. We cannot think beyond the human realm and reign. Everything is about the we are all caught by the spirit of human exceptionalism. There is no soil in our readings. There are no rivers in our thinking, no animals in our feelings, no air in our scholarship. But before the beast cuts my voice, I must tell you, the work to destroy is the spirit of capitalism and needs to get us root We need to cast our demons away from ourselves. And we need new sorceries, my friend, because it's a spirit. We need new sorceries against these demons. We need rituals to cast out these demons. Rituals to do something. Rituals, everybody.
4: Just don't bother. He will be fine.
7: Keep going with your scholarship, my friends. Just know that I always be.
8: I'm, I'm Jeff Robbins. I teach at Lebanon Valley College. I was uh, longtime co-chair of the God and Human Future Seminar and current chair of the Westar Board of Directors. Um, uh, My comments, I just wanted to kind of acknowledge uh, that I'm very sort of reliant on a couple of other works that uh, have informed my own thinking about the connections between Christianity, I guess, American Christianity and um, capitalism, and that's Kate Bowler from Duke, her her book, Blessed, History of the American Prosperity Gospel, and also uh, Chris Lehman, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. Um, These are books, maybe I can uh, provide a link to those in the the notes after I'm done. Also, there's a really excellent podcast um, from PBS, uh, Throughline Podcast, uh, part of their capitalism series uh, entitled God Wants You to Be Rich. So in, in light of that, um, I want to make the argument that the, that the making of American Christianity can be told by drawing a straight line from the Second Great Awakening to the Prosperity Gospel. and includes re- religious figures such as Charles Finney and Oral Roberts to various self-help group gurus such as Norman Vincent Peale, Tony Robbins, Oprah Winfrey and even Donald Trump himself. By this reading, the high point of the political mobilization of the evangelical right in the United States was not George W. Bush's faith-based agenda as it is often thought to be, but instead Donald Trump who represents the apotheosis. For it is Donald Trump or better Trumpism that has successfully taken the precepts of the prosperity gospel and channeled them into a political movement. The figures mentioned above or each in their own way apostles of the prosperity gospel. And as such represent a succession of theological entrepreneurs who together provide a spiritual psychology of success. By their shared message of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, or in the words of Kate Bowler, their shared message of a gospel of empowered individualism. Not only do they provide a theological sanctification of neoliberalism, the idea that the free market is the solution to all of our problems. But this message is also quintessentially American and how it seamlessly folds into the notion of American exceptionalism and the American dream. So to fill in the details just a little bit, Charles Finney was the leading voice of the second great awakening. Interestingly, he was not a trained minister by trade but instead a practicing lawyer. Like many of his generation, he was a victim of the salvation panic described by Max Weber in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. To alleviate the anxiety felt in association with the doctrine, sorry about my dog, about the doctrine of predestination. It was Finney who spoke of quote, active measures one could take to bring about one's salvation by asking the question, given the absolute sovereignty of God, what is actually in my control? the answer he offered as an itinerant preacher traveling from one tent revival to another uh, as the young independent united states was still being forged as a nation was that i can create a better more productive self and by the signs of my own productivity and success this serves as god as proof of god's favor towards me i can rest assured in god by resting assured in my own well-being Fast forward from Charles Finney to Oral Roberts, a master of radio and early television, whose promise of healing and prosperity translated into the health and wealth gospel. It was he, better than most, who turned evangelization into a full business venture. And he accomplished this largely through what he called the seed faith doctrine. That is faith is made tangible as a down payment. It so happens that his health and wealth gospel coincided perfectly with the post-war boom economy in which there was a massive growth in home ownership, Cold War anti-communism ideology that increasingly saw America's rise as a superpower, as a sign of God's favor, and simultaneously with the notion of Jesus being popularly portrayed as a businessman, as in Bruce Barton's bestseller, The Man Nobody Knows. And all of this leads to where we find ourselves now, where in the neoliberal sanctification of the market, tells us in so many ways to not be afraid. No matter the economic anxiety, no matter the precarity of contemporary life, no matter the lack of job security, the social dislocation, the widening gap between rich and poor, the border crisis, the tide of anti-immigration sentiment, and the list goes on and on. Do not be afraid because God helps those who help themselves. This is the distinctly American gospel, That has slowly but surely allowed the creative destruction long associated with capitalism to do its job on what once was the good news for the poor. Thank you.
9: My name is Ellie Elliott. I'm a Westar scholar with the Christianity Seminars and with the think tank, as you know. The thought I'd like to share here comes from one of my other identities, however, in environmental community organizing here in Montana. I invite us to consider a basic grassroots concept from that work as a major element in how we interrupt capitalism. The system and culture of capitalism values everything based on profit and opposed to this is the concept of intrinsic worth. Cowboy poet Wally McCrae articulates this concept in a poem we'll hear in a moment. Wally is one of the rancher founders of the Northern Plains Resource Council fighting strip mining here since 1972, and at that time our region with its vast coal seams was designated on some federal agency maps as a national sacrifice area. Everything on the surface was defined as overburden. Capitalism valued the coal underneath. At the annual meeting of Northern Plains, Wally usually recites this poem. Most of us mouth along. It's almost taken as uh, on the status of scripture and quite appropriately. I wanna propose intrinsic worth as a core religious concept that interrupts capitalism's drive to commodify everything. Intrinsic worth is at the heart of why people organize to face the ravages of capitalism. People organize in defense of real places, real people, real cultures of intrinsic worth. So much more needs to be said about these ranchers' relationship with their Northern Cheyenne neighbors and the marvelous alliances currently being formed, about their understanding of colonization from experiencing it, about the massive fire that just tore through a few weeks ago, about my own niece's union mining family in Coal Strip, but Wally's own recitation can offer more for our thinking, I believe. He wrote this when the massive destruction in Rosebud County was only beginning. Remember that sand rock on Emmels Creek where dad carved his name in 13? It's been blasted down into rubble and interned by a drag, drag line machine. And where fatals, um, meet at the old Myler place, where us kids stole melons at night. They dozed it up in a funeral pyre and torched it. It's gone all right. The sea on the hill and the water tanks are now classified reclaimed land. They're thinking of building a golf course out there so we understand. The old Egan homesteads and ash pond, they say it's 80 feet deep. And the branding corral at the Douglas camp is underneath a spoil heap. And across the creek is a tipple now where they load coal into a a train. And the May West rock on Haque Coulee, just black and white snapshots remain. There's a railroad loop and a cold storage shed where the bison kill site used to be. The guy place is gone. Ambrose's to Beulah Farley's a ranch refugee. But things are booming. We've got this new school that's envied across the whole state. And when folks up and ask, how's things going down there? Hell, i grin like a fool and say, great. Great God, how we're doing. We're rolling in dough as they tear and they ravage the earth. And nobody knows and nobody cares about things of intrinsic worth. So for our reflection, how can our commitment to things of intrinsic worth interrupt capitalism?
4: Yeah, just a really quick comment, um, Claudio, I, I really enjoyed the theatrical presentation that you did, and I think that there's, a, it, it reflects kind of what I'm trying to do too, which is, you know, turning this stuff into story and, and translating it into a medium that can kind of capture um, the emotion that goes along with the statement. So in this case, just the evil of it and relating that into, you know, in a religious language when we say we need to exercise the demons of Christianity. Like that that's just exactly what I think I'm trying to do and exactly what I wanted to bring to the table about the idea that we need to realize what this is in story form so that we can mythologize it, so that we can have a new mythology, a new story that we can work with. So thank you for that. And uh, I thought it was just really, really well done. And I I enjoyed that. Thank you.
7: Appreciate that. Love that you mentioned the story.
4: Yes. Yes. Thank you.
6: Maybe just a couple of thoughts to throw out there and see if anyone finds them interesting. Um, one, I, I'm wondering about the kind of the different ways that, that people are negotiating with um, both kind of uh, Christian traditions as, oh. I was about to say, a resource. <laughs> Maybe not the right vocabulary. Maybe, you know, Christian traditions as having alternative power to them um, and negotiating that with also seeing the ways in which uh, all kinds of different forms of Christian tradition are Uh, intertwined with, uh, implicated in, uh, maybe synonymous with uh, forms of capitalism and the kind of ecological crisis we're we're facing. And also I I thought that that there was a, you know, I think, well, and and, and part of that is, you know, part of me wants to stick up for Clement of Alexandria, because I think we have the wrong reading of him, but that sounds like a really uninteresting observation. But also uh, it seemed like that one of the kind of, that, that there was a number of different ways of searching for, uh, like positive alternatives, and it seemed like land came up quite a bit. And I think it, it's it's interesting to think about what different Christian traditions of, of land are.
1: I'd just add, in addition to land, also ritual practices in various forms.
9: This kind of relates to both Wilson and Claudio, as well as um, Nina. Um, the notion of intrinsic worth as whether that's located in what you call the sites of social reproduction. I mean, it's a, it's a very b- basic important um, aspect of how capitalism works, um, just the ways that it devalues everything that doesn't actually directly make profit and the land as overburdened for coal um, and the work of women and the work of the household, all of that. And that seems to also be where we find Uh, human beings valuing uh, something other than profit and you know how we turn that into as religious people how we work with that as an organizational center um, I think is a good question for us and then I just was just resonating all the way through your presentation Claudio of um, just uh, how we're possessed by something and the the notion that we need to start being possessed by the land and the places that we live in, I think is also what Wally and and, uh, his, you know, the notion of intrinsic worth and what the the native, the indigenous folks around us here bring to us that that um, connection and being possessed by where we live um, and the land of where we live is important to kind of cast out the demons of capitalism and then who are the new sorcerers for this oh my goodness there's so much
3: this conversation is so interesting and i it's raised a, a number of things within me and I, I really appreciate the comments about the demonic possession of us through capitalism and of land And I know that I started also my own presentation with a huge marrying of how Christianity and imperialism came together and, you know, the ways in which Christianity has propped up capitalism, but there's also this diehard Walter Rauschenbusch loving social gospel person inside of me that says but hey wait, like that's not all that Christianity has to offer here there is this whole other piece that can help us, you know, remove this demonic possession that can return us to to doing, I think, better in the world. I think the birth of social work came out of Christian traditions of the social gospel, That there's also lots of really great things that can come out of returning to origins. And I think that's been a thing that's happened in Christianity, reformation, whatever we wanna call it, that just returning back to the teachings of Jesus can make us radical in a time and show us a way forward. So I just wanna throw that out there.
2: to Wilson's comment. I I mean, I think it's about um, recovering what you can from a tradition, recovering the liberatory aspects of a tradition. Um, And that's sort of my goal in reading biblical texts. But I I, I also think that takes an amount of honesty too, that there are texts in the Bible and there are texts that are in Jesus that are unrecoverable or I wouldn't wanna recover them. Um, and I think we need, to, we need to drop the idea of perfection when it comes to biblical texts. And I, I think we've done that um, with a lot of the texts in the Hebrew Bible and other places in the New Testament but I still think we want to hold up Jesus as this paradigm for obvious reasons. But we also need to be honest when Jesus says things that don't fit with what we want to do as well. Um, And so um, that's what I would add to the discussion. But I think there's a place for recovery, but I think there's a place for honesty and what we can't recover and there are cross purposes in biblical texts. There are some texts that are liberatory and there are some texts that support empire. And those are all found in the same Bible. And we need to be honest about that. So it's not just about recovering biblical texts. It's about recovering the right biblical texts. <clears throat> One that foster liberation.
7: mention three brief things from the comments that i that i heard one is i think the structure of of, of theology when is organized around the transcendence and immanence <clears throat> uh, uh messes up so much with uh, with the notions of the sacred and what is sacred what is not sacred you're always pinpointing and and so we have turned this in inward uh, augustinian inward uh, uh an outside um uh, uh, <clears throat> action of an inward event right in 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 augustinian ways and and so I think that that has been complicated by the very notion of what is sacred and I remember <clears throat> uh uh when said that there's nothing uh, um that everything is sacred there are only desecrated things and and that notion I think goes to what Ellie uh, had said about the intrinsic notion uh, worth of things which is we have to get to that but we can only get to that through rituals if if we look at indigenous people and if you look at like Buddhism like the, the practical theology is what it is uh but in Christianity we have these layers right? in practical theology is kind of a, a wishy-washy stuff some, some of it. so I, I think for for us to rediscover that intrinsic worth of things we, we need a different uh, 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 orientation of our senses of our body, of, of how we relate to the land, to the trees, to the rivers. And, and that is only through uh, rituals. And, and, and that's why I was, uh, it is a way, I do believe that we need those new sources that we have to, to name those in order to find ways to, to dispossess ourselves from that notion of that only the mind is the source of everything. Right? And, and we can figure out everything by thinking, only. Uh, and so I think that's why uh, uh, one task that I think is, what are the new sorceries and the new rituals to help us to get to the um, intrinsic worth of things?
5: Although um, I don't know that I would move, make the move to rituals so much, um, I would like to say, and uh, this is uh, resonating with Ellie's piece, that in this course that I teach, which is frankly my only entree into this discussion this evening, the religion that raises, rises I should say to the top is native religion. That scores an A, the rest of the religions, not even David Loy's Buddhism rises very high. And that's where I think you get to this intrinsic worth because the land be, has value. In no other religion that we study in this class, um, uh, do you, does, is there an honoring of the land? Uh, mind you, the course is about the environmental crisis, environmentalism, um, but the land reigns supreme in native religion and it honors the land, the trees. And um, this may sound heretical, but to me it sounds more and more uh, natural. The trees have a spirit. Uh, We need to hug the trees. I don't know, you're not gonna call that a ritual, but I think that's the kind of turnaround that it's going to take if we are going to address what I'm calling the environmental crisis.
8: Yeah, and I was just, I was very taken with the distinction between, I think it was Wilson who made it, between creation and production, um, if only I, I, I but because I had not really thought about that distinction before, and I, I'm wondering what that does to the concept or the attempt to sort of value the intrinsic worth of things, because with with creation, there's still the possibility of creating or generating worth. Um, worth is not only a given, uh, but I saw, and, and I don't even know how to think about that yet, but I'm wondering if others on the panel um, have any thoughts on what the distinction between creation and production does to the notion of the intrinsic worth of certain things or people's. Cool.
6: Well, and I wonder if, if there is a, a slight distinction to be made between, say, the common good and intrinsic good. And so, you know, and, and, and I wonder if there's also different kind of environmental imaginations at, at work in, in those two different ones, right? So where maybe the intrinsic good is more of an environmental tradition that's focused on wilderness, um, I think the common good is maybe from more of an environmental tradition. That's like from environmental justice, where the environment is where we work, live, and play. And so then, so, right? So there's there's a number of different there's a number of different goods, right? There's the the goods of private property. Then there's also the goods of say uh, of the commons, right? Which is which is a relational good, right? So it's it's not a good that's necessarily contained in in the object. And a lot of the discourse about the commons, right? There's there, there's even an emphasis being put on commoning, right? So it's it's these kind of social processes. So so I think that that I mean I, I don't and I don't think that these things are necessarily have to be. I mean I think there's probably porous edges between them. Um, but I, I, I so I I think that there that some of the ways in, in which we're trying to think outside the goods of the, of, of private property. I think there there are different ways, and I think the commons and intrinsic good might actually be slightly different if that
4: distinction helps.
9: From what you've just said, I think it's really important to make that distinction between um, things of intrinsic worth and what Wally is talking about and using that and what we organize around is something more than the common good of human beings. It is also the land and that um, what's emerging with the alliance of indigenous groups and ranchers and environmentalists in Montana and elsewheres, which has defeated the Tongue River Railroad, the Keystone XL pipeline. I mean, it's, it's powerful, but it's looking at more than the human common good because cap what capitalism does is rape and pillage everything, including the land. And when we're taught, I, th- I think there's something to what you're saying, Claudia, about um, ritual. Um, it's something we're working on with the um, Stone Circles project here too. Um, our, one of our indigenous elders uh, who passed away from COVID last year, um, just the way that he, taught us to look and see the energy of the land. I mean, just that the energy is being affected. It's not just the land and things, but there's a whole thing that's being affected by how we live on the land. Um, And the restorative rituals are something that we can only learn from people who are indigenous here. Um, I mean... Or, or it's invented, it's a whole, that's a whole big question that I think is, is hugely important for how we, how we start to rethink Christianity and our relationship to it.
4: Yeah, I just noticed the, a lot of the language and a lot of the stuff we're talking about is, is just very um, rooted and is very, uh, assumes a certain permanence. And I just kind of want to raise the danger of that because Christianity and capitalism I mean, capitalism is hardly capitalism anymore, right? That, that term is just, it's its become something else. And so is Christianity in many in many ways. And so those things are growing and those things are moving. And so even with intrinsic worth, like that's something that's very rooted. And I'm just kind of cautioning us because I think we need to be very, very malleable. I think we need to be able to flow, you know, with with those things and against those things instead of like find what we need to root ourselves in so that we can combat, right? I think we need to flow because I think it's, as someone had mentioned, please Wilson, that it, these things are porous.
2: Well, I'm all on board with the land and going back to the land, Um, but I also think we need to have a more nuanced understanding of what that means as well, is because land is also destructive and will kill you. (laughs) I mean, there are parasites, there's, I mean, the land is sort of indifferent to us in a lot of ways, and... um, I think that needs to be taken account too. we can't have this sort of nostalgic notion of returning back to the land. We need to have a realistic notion of accepting land if that makes any sense
8: and I think the reason I was asking the question about the distinction between creation and production and its connection with intrinsic worth is because i because I was trying to get at the 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 um, the work capitalism d- did in, or the work Christianity did in sanctifying uh, sort of capitalism as a form of individual greed. Um, and so if there is a possibility of thinking about creation and uh, in communal terms and the kind of cooperation uh, of the of social reproduction that, that, that Wilson was getting at, I, I i think it's not just about sort of a return to the land as as the only thing that which can interrupt capitalism but sort of alternative ways of being together and not just sort of being together as in human relationality but also being together in a in interspecies uh communal- communality as well so um i, I, I these are not really fully formed thoughts yet but um i mean I appreciate the the panel at least kind of provoking it for me i
6: think that that's i think that's a lot of what's and i, I saw this in the comments or somebody pointed to leviticus right and i think that's a lot of what's at stake in a lot of the hebrew traditions of land and i think that's also a lot of what's at stake in jesus radicalization of of traditions of covenant and agrarian traditions of covenant right? so the covenant is always about the relationship between god and neighbor and the land Right, and so, and and this is kind of baked into so many elements of Christian traditions too, and it's and and it goes beyond scripture. But I think because we often devalue the sectors of, say, social reproduction, we don't really see the the kind of the role of the land. That we often don't see the kind of the the way in which, say, so Clement of Alexandria. Right is is concerned about desire, not because it's this liberal individual individualizing, it's because he's and there's all kinds of problems with Clement, but also it's because in these communities they're trying to cultivate a different kind of life that's anti-imperial, that's that's focused on the commons, on simplicity, and on interdependence. So so I think that there that, so like this kind of there is this whole Christian tradition of you know that goes along with capitalism, and, and that's one version of creation. And there's all these other kind of tangled traditions,
0: I think, that have these other elements. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the Westar Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Westar Institute or become a member, visit weststarinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.